Hello, I'm Hayley Jarrick, CEO of the Supply Chain Sustainability School. This episode of the People, Planet, Profit podcast was recorded as part of a video series. In this theoretical integrated design forum, architects, engineers, material suppliers, builders and facility managers tell us things they wish the others knew about sustainable properties. We hope you enjoy. Hi, Jenny. Thanks for joining us today. I wonder if you can kick off with just letting us know um, what you do and who, what do you do and who you work for? Hi, Hayley. Thanks for um, inviting me, actually. It's a real privilege. Um, so I own a facility management business called Melbourne Building Management, and it's been running for nine and a half years now, and we mainly focus on residential buildings. So we have around 43 buildings across Melbourne, metropolitan Melbourne, um, the suburbs of Melbourne, and we've got about 80 staff now on um, on our books who work in, in the building. So we employ building managers to work on site, and like facility managers, we're there to look after the asset of the building. We look after all the common property. We look after the machinery and equipment. We look after things like pools and gyms and um, spas, but also, you know, car gates, um, the air conditioning, hot water and cold water. But in addition to doing all of that, we also do a lot of customer service. So in our role as residential apartment managers, we end up working with the residents every day. We might be doing bookings with them. We might be helping them move in and out of the building. We might be doing inductions with them if they're new to apartment buildings, just to show them how the building works. We help them with um, booking common, common property um, and, and pretty much any other of the challenges that face um, owners corporations. So if they've got challenges with, with their neighbours being noisy or, you know, the local dog or pretty much anything you can possibly think of that happens in an apartment building, we're right there on the front line to help them out with it. Awesome. So I can imagine that most people who are sort of anyone who's ever lived in an apartment complex knows exactly what you do. Yeah, yes. <laughs> and exactly. has probably experienced it from the other point of view. And for those that have um, not had that pleasure, you can sort of, I think, you've given a really good summary of the, the life um, uh, in the, you know, on, on the other side of, of what makes everything function and, and happen properly. And I suppose one of the, the joys of what you do is that, you know, if nobody ever hears from you or sees from you, it means you're doing everything perfectly and um, <laughs> and happily and they're just coming to you with all the joyous things like how do I book the pool um, and none of the problems that get around other areas. So thanks that's for joining really- us today because we're, I think that that's kind of, you, you're perfectly placed to come at this from, and I know we've had these sort of these conversations as well, of when we're, when we're linking with people through uh, the entire construction supply chain, you sort of get lumped at the end of it with um, all of the legacies of the decisions that were made through the design, um, construction and the build. Um, and then you're left to sort of figure out things at the end of the day um, as to the practical application and the operations of, of um, construction and building assets. So um, I'm going to ask you sort of, Four questions, and they're very similar, but I want to kick off with um, what are three things that you think that facility managers wish that architects knew about sustainable properties? Oh, um, so it's a great question because there's probably about 300 things that I'd actually love to tell architects about sustainable buildings. Probably the first one is that any sustainability, anything that's put into a building to be sustainable needs to be able to be managed. So, and what I mean by that is that it's all very well to have, um, you know, a cascading garden um, that goes down, you know, seven flights of the building on the outside. Um, They're absolutely beautiful to look at, 
but the the cost of maintaining so the cost of maintaining i think if i hope you know what i'm talking about but the gardens you know the um vertical walls that they often put on buildings yeah absolutely internally and externally yeah 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 well when they put them on the external buildings they're absolutely they're amazing and i totally love them because you know they're contributing to the plant life of the buildings and they look wonderful and you know there's just so many reasons why having plants in your building is a fantastic idea but for an owner's corporation the cost of maintaining one of them is is just astronomical um i've seen one that's about six floors high and i was told that the cost of maintaining it was between 40 and fifty thousand dollars a year and that's something that is, you know, within their owner's corporation budget. So every residential apartment person has to then, you know, find that extra money within their owner's corporation fees to pay for that. So, you know, having plants in, in buildings is, is so important, I think, and making sure that those garden areas are so important. But those garden areas really need to be, well, they need to be sustainable in their own right, putting native Australian plants in so that they're low maintenance and they're cost effective, that they don't need a huge amount of watering. Uh, a lot of the problems that we have from from plants, particularly in buildings, is where they're on um, podium levels, often the planter boxes will leak. So that then causes a whole list of other issues that we then have to deal with. And it, again, it goes back to plants are so important to have in the environment, in, in any environment where we live, but how are they maintained? And what's the cost of that into the long term? Putting something in that looks amazing, you know, we had one building where they put a palm in that came down from Queensland. It was gorgeous. It probably cost a lot of money to get it there. Had to be winched up two levels to put it in. But because it came from Queensland in July into Melbourne, it died because it was too cold. And, you know, it, it just didn't survive the experience of the change. It, architecturally, it looked incredible. But what we need in apartment buildings is things that we can um, you know, that we can keep, that we can continue to look after, but that are going to cope with the harsh conditions that, you know, ultimately apartment that apartment living is. So that's one. Um, thinking about um, the materials that are used in buildings is, is a second one that I get really passionate about. And uh, the reason for that is that, you know, there's a lot of, a lot, we have a lot of rooftop gardens, which again, are beautiful places to be with barbecues and outdoor areas and places that they can sit but there is a real thing for putting rocks in rooftop gardens. And while they make sense because they don't tend to blow away, the greatest problem that we then have is if we have apartment buildings full of kids um, or even young adults that they use the outdoor roof areas for their parties and they've got lots of people around, rocks become really easy weapons and having rocks thrown off the sixth or seventh or the 27th floor of an apartment building is obviously actually a really um, quite a scary and sometimes dangerous thing. And I've had so many people tell me that, you know, well, they're just rocks and, and they could be anywhere. And that's true. But putting things into, uh, into apartment buildings, you have to think about how people are going to use that area. You have to think about what, what might happen in that area that, you know, that then might encourage people to lift rocks up. I mean, we had one person shooting golf balls off the top of a building once, which was quite entertaining. Um, and we obviously had to shut that down. But obviously, but rocks can be the, the same sort of thing. Um, and, you know, giving people projectiles tends to just give them a reason to hurl them off the building. I don't want to be a soothsayer, like it's not it's not all bad. Um, but it's just, <laughs> it's, it's just an example of, of where materials that can seem really inane in one circumstance can actually become really problematic in another. Um, and yeah. putting rocks down in a garden might be fantastic, but maybe then just put a, screen, a, a wire type of screen over it so that then they can't then be taken out of the garden. You know, maybe that's what, maybe it's just some simple, a really simple thing like that needs to be done just to help 
maintain it into the future and, and make it not a challenge. Oh, absolutely. Um, I think you may as well be putting sort of neon paint on every single rock that says, pick me up and play with me to any right, child. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, or early 20s person that's got a couple of drinks in them. I think it's a great yep. idea, you know, see if they can hit the tree across the road. Yep. Um, or doesn't, or, you know, and, and, and that's the thing that we found in all of our apartment buildings. One of the things that we would love architects to think about is, you know, it might look amazing. And and it, so uh, and probably my third one, and like I said, I've got at least 300, so if anyone wants to ask me further in the future, please, please do. Um, <laughs> my, my third one would be, um, you know, with the, with the architecture is the interior design. We have the most amazing building that um, has won all of these incredible awards um, for its design and for its interior design. And it has very, but what it does have is it has very, very special finishes. So things like um, press plaster or press concrete, I think in one building we've got press plaster, which is beautiful. It's lovely to look at. It's got a great finish on it. Um, you know, in a, in a de decorated space, it, it makes feel, it's very homely and it makes people feel, feel very comfortable. But they put it into a, um, a lounge area that's often used for birthday parties. So what happens then is that everyone comes in with their streamers and their balloons and they use sticky tape and blue tack and they step, stick it all over the press blaster. And as you can imagine, it doesn't go very well because it's really hard to get off. And then if you damage the press plaster, it's impossible to fix because you actually need to take strips of it out, put new strips back in. So while it won an award for looking beautiful prior to people moving into it, it, it probably wouldn't win the award for longevity. Um, you know, and and how is it going to be maintained into the future? If we're looking at our buildings lasting for 25 or 30 years, there's a good chance that really, really high-end finishes that need very particular application to clean them and to... Um, you know, to fix them are not going to end up looking that fantastic, you know, into the future. And will then that means that the owners' corporation will then be looking at ways of changing it out or having to upgrade it, and and obviously that involves a cost. So I think there's actually a lot of things that architects really can do to make our lives a lot easier, um, even if it's just having a conversation with us. To be honest, at the start, you know, what what do you think about this incredibly glass shiny thing that looks beautiful? <laughs> just so that we can explain to them how people might use it in the future because, you know, given the experiences that we've had. Yeah, I think that's a really good one. And I think that um, I know that the Architects um, Declare Movement held a, um, a webinar not long ago on integrated design um, and actually getting everybody through the stakeholder groups together in the room at the start of the project to sort of really flesh out those issues. And I think that process of integrated design would actually sort of, you know, you like you said, it's having those conversations really early on in the piece to say, looks great it might have great sustainability credentials it might you know all of those wonderful things but if you're replacing it every second weekend because you know someone's put sticky tape on it again then it kind of really defeats the purpose from a life cycle perspective point of view of all of the great things you're trying to do either aesthetically or sustainability um, related metrics or anything else that goes into that um, and I know that we'll definitely have to have that list of 300 things um, and we can expand that in future. Um, but before, so that was three very good things for architects. Are there any engineering issues? So what are three things that you that facility managers wish that engineers knew about properties? Uh, <laughs> um, engineering is interesting for us because it's probably a little bit um beyond the scope of the things that we manage in a day-to-day -day experience, unless it's things like noise. 
So one of the things that one of the, uh, there's a tower in the city um, that I've spoken to just recently. It's not one that we manage, but one of the challenges that they have in their building is noise. And the noise is, is with regards to engineering because it's actually got to do with the way the tower has been built. And um, there's a, it's a particular, I think it's like there's a wind tunnel that runs through the, usually waste chutes go through the centre of the core. So things like lists and, and waste chutes tend to be, you know, sit, tend to, not always, but tend to sit in the in the core of the building and um, often the buildings are built around it. This one's got to do with um, one of the ways that the waste chute was constructed so that when it gets windy, there's um, the waste chute's like impacting, and I don't know that, I'm not an engineer, so I, I don't know the technical details, but the, the chute's actually impacting on the building in some way, shape or form, and it causes a lot of noise. And obviously in a commercial building, um, perhaps where you've got people there, you know, nine to five in the daytime, a little bit of noise from wind is not going to be too much of an issue. They could drown it out with headphones, et cetera. But if you're trying to sleep in an apartment that's directly impacted by noise caused by, um, you know, a flawed engineering design, then that's a really, really challenging thing, particularly because they're hard to fix. Like there's no way, there's really no way that you can go and strip the whole of the the core of a building out and re-put it in so that, you know, to fix a, a noise issue. So it's just being, I suppose, in a, in a way, particularly in apartment buildings, being quite specific as to understanding what the impacts of any little change is going to be on people that live in the building later on. Yeah, I think that's a really key one. It's, like you said, it's just kind of, it's a it's a different ball game when you're sort of talking commercial daytime applications are usually pretty noisy during the day they've got other stuff going on but at night time you're going to hear every little creak um so it's really sort of making sure that's it do you have any other tips for engineers or would you like to move on to material suppliers um no i probably don't have any engineering ones just off the top of my head but i'll think about them and if i have some more i'll come back to you i promise <laughs> <laughs> it's like no no we'll just add them to the list of the 300 architectural ones that we can um, definitely yeah, we can yeah. <laughs> um, All right, so let's talk about facility manager tips for material suppliers then. What do you wish they knew about buildings? Yeah, material suppliers. It's It goes back to one of the ones that I said about the architect in the, um, in the beginning. I think materials that are supplied into building have to be, they actually have to be really hard wearing and there has to be a real understanding of what the areas are going to be used for so uh, putting in you know a beautiful plush carpet into an area where pools are going to be um, you know where there's a pool and a spa and a sauna so that people are coming out of those things and walking straight across your beautiful plush carpets is just really um, it's not a great idea and understanding that you know the areas within a building where there's going to be a great deal more wear. So carpets are a perfect example. Some of the best buildings I've seen have actually had tile, tiles in the foyer areas of where the lifts are. And then the carpets in the, in the corridors actually extend out from the tiled area right in front of the lift. Because ultimately lift areas sitting, you know, right in front of lift areas, that's where you're going to get the most traffic. And so it makes sense to put something that's really, really hard wearing right in front of those areas where you're going to get the most traffic and then have, you know, the carpets, um, like further out so that they're not getting as worn um, as quickly and having to be replaced as often. But it's also um, understanding things like, you know, lining lifts and lifts just came to mind, but lining lifts with really fragile, um, a really fragile material doesn't then lend itself to helping people move in and out because when people are moving their furniture in and out of a building, the only way that they can get their items to a, their apartment is up and down the lift. 
So obviously if you've got materials that are really soft and that they scratch easily, um, and we've had one lift that's been lined with timber where this, it, you know, they were really badly damaged, even just by things like bikes being put in the lift or prams, um, you know, dogs coming to the lift and, you know, scratch it with their feet or whatever. Those are the sorts of, it's. I think for materials person, and I'm actually not even sure if it's their fault, to be honest, because I think often those materials are specified by, you know, perhaps the architects or um, people who are designing the building, but understanding, you know, how uh, how surfaces need to be more hard-wearing as opposed to beautiful. <laughs> There's a real yeah. functionality needed in apartment buildings. It, it, you know, I'm, I'm absolutely confident you can have both, but what happens is that they start beautiful and if they don't, if they don't wear well, then over a period of time they become really shabby and so you sort of lose that sparkle um that they once had i suppose on a materials you know material designers really need to be behind their products and understanding what their capability of their products are so like you know the cladding debate in apartment buildings now i'm sure everyone knows about is a real is a real eye-opener in that regard bringing in um materials from china if you're going to supply material from china you really do need to understand what the australian standard is behind that material that you're bringing in um and I think that's where the cladding debates become such a problem because, you know, there was, an, that there was a belief that the cladding that was being put on the outside of these buildings was within standard and, and now it appears that it is not. And, you know, it's, the cost to having to remove the, the cladding on buildings is astronomical and it's all falling back on the apartment owners, which is really challenging for a lot of people. Yeah, yeah. I think you're right there too in terms of um, it's sort of that, that two-edged sword, right? You can create materials and then you can... Um, specify how they should be used but you can't always guarantee that people are going to use them correctly and at the same time then you if you're going to market a material for a particular purpose then you should try and find something that's fit for purpose um, and often the materials that are designed for increased durability might not be the cheapest option in the short term um, you know to just whack it in and get the building um, released but for the longevity and um, operation of that building it is absolutely the best cost alternative to spend a little bit more money up front and have the life cycle costs reduced um, for people as they go in there so that's um that's something that's really sort of fitting as we get in there as well um that's like I said, yeah sorry you guys and I was just going to say, I think there really needs to be an understanding about that too, because there, there has to be a, a, you know, there has to be a cost benefit in it. I think if you can demonstrate that a building has been built with really, you know, beautiful but durable materials and that's going to last, you know, that it has a sustainability component to it, that it's going to last a lot longer, um, you know, that things aren't going to have to be replaced as quickly, that the life cycle is extended out, that then that there has to then, you know, I suppose what we need to then do is educate well, look to ways of educating apartment owners or people purchasing apartments to understand that there's there's you know a greater value to them in that that and and, and it is now you can see you can just see that in some of our really old buildings in the city that have just endured and and still are looking like you know fantastic that the value has to be in in having an apartment in a building like that as opposed to something that's very new but actually isn't maintaining its um you know, the materials aren't surviving the experience of, of being in a really high traffic space and that so many things do need to be changed out in them. That, you know, there's a cost comparative there. Yes, you've got to maintain your building into the future, but if it's built built really well in the beginning, then obviously that long-term cost is going to be less. Yeah, and I think we've touched on, we're going to jump to the next one then about builders. So I think that that's kind of the middleman between the 
um, the architects, engineers and the and the material suppliers is uh, who physically puts it in the space um, and how they construct that. So do you have any, um, what are three things that you think you wish facility managers uh, that builders knew about sustainable buildings? <laughs> yeah, like the architects, I've got about 100. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Three. Yeah, I'll try and find... Okay, I'm, I'm not coming up with, I'm, I'm giving you long-winded answers too probably. Um, three things I wish builders knew. Um, that The first thing is um, moving people into a building while they're still building is really, really challenging. <laughs> and so if that's what's going to happen, they need to be prepared to work with us because, um, you know, it's it's just, it's, a, it's not an easy thing to do. That's probably not even an appropriate one. Um, thing... The first one is commission. If you've got sustainability, um, things being put in your buildings, I've, and one things like water tanks, um, solar systems, um, you know, small wind turbines, anything that's being put into the building, buildings can be quite, they can be quite blasé about it because they're in their view, councils make, are making the buildings put them in um, to get their sustainability rating. And, um, but they don't tend to, they don't always, get them up and running because they don't believe that they're going to be used in the buildings. And so I think builders, there's a real, there's, there should be a real push by builders to actually make sure that, that any of those measures are in and operable prior to them then sort of, you know, going, oh, yeah, here's the building, I'm going to hand it over to you. And my reason for saying that is because often if those things aren't working at the point where the builders go, yeah, we're done, they're not ever commissioned. Um, and it's, it, it seemed to be a bit of a there's a, there's a bit of a gap there I feel in in an understanding around how good sustainable buildings can be like you know how there are so many things that can be done to certainly reduce costs and to reduce emissions but they're not always actually proactively um, put in place or commissioned and they're not always running at the point where the buildings are taken over by the facility management then often if that's the case the facility managers might not have the knowledge or the ability to get them up and running themselves so. That's the first one. If you've got sustainable things in your building, please make sure they're actually running at the point where you then hand the building over so that the, you know, the people that buy the apartments actually have the benefit of those things. Um, my second one is steps in any area that you're going to move, like any area where you have to move furniture or equipment or are a really, really bad idea. <laughs> so there's been, um, and the reason why I say this is to the builders and not the architects is because I know that, you know, in the building process, sometimes things have to change. You know, they'll, they'll get in there and they'll find that, you know, something ultimately a ramp can't be put in a, in an area because there's not enough fall or there's not enough handrails or whatever. And so they'll make a decision to put a step in there instead. And I'll actually have this in one of my in one of our buildings, but they put a step in the loading bay. And having a step in a loading bay where you are moving furniture all the time and getting equipment into a building and having to move really heavy and really large things is just so difficult. <laughs> Yeah. And it's one step. And, and I'm sure at the time the builders were like, it's just one step. But, again, it's understanding what that cascade effect is that it has on the on this building once it's taken over and it's actually being managed. And I think that, again, like architects, builders could really do, you know, it wouldn't hurt them to have a conversation with, with a facility management company just to understand, you know, what some of the challenges are once you take a building over because, I think there's there's that real lack of um, connectivity between the two the two um, 
professions to be honest just just here's a product go use it and that's fine but then you know there sometimes the challenges could just very easily have been just totally eradicated by the builder if they had just um you know had a had a conversation with someone about it in the in the first instance um and what's the other thing about builders I don't know. All the builders that we've met have actually been really good. And again, it's it's one of those things where I think that there needs to be a co- cohesive conversation between architects, interior designs, designers, builders, material, because collectively all of those people contribute to what is going to be, what the building product is going to be. Oh, the, the one other thing is um, don't swap products out because what I have actually um, heard of is where an architect has specified particular products in a building, you know, and I'm talking about materials in this case. I think I mentioned this before with the materials engineers. But, you know, they, they specify particular materials because the architects see that they, those materials are going to do X, Y, Z. They might be easy to clean. They might be really durable. They might be really fitting for that area. But the builders can see a way around it, so they actually swap it out for something that's a, to what ends up to us looking to be an inferior product. And that can then, of course, make, you know, that just changes that conversation. It can make it really challenging to clean it or it might not be durable or it might not be fit for purpose. Um, yeah. And, and there is an opportunity, I know, for builders to do that, and that, that can then cause some really, you know, rather large challenges for silly managers down the, down the track. Awesome. Well, I, I will come back to you because I think we do need to get those 300 tips together um, and share them with architects and at least put them out there in a, a much longer forum um, that we can sort of really get to. And I think it's one of those key things that I deal with with dealing with the entire supply chain is actually getting each part of that supply chain to communicate some of these issues so we can prevent them from happening in the future. So I will definitely get in contact with you, Jenny, um, and we'll get them all out there and see if we can promote them um, and talk about it um, through the different industry forums. Um, but until then, thank you so much for um, joining me for this session. Um, and look forward to our next chat. Thank you, Hayley. Thank you so much for inviting me. It's been a total pleasure.